The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Well, go ahead and just keep your uh, fingers there. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. We're just trucking along in our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been um, in Mark since about this time last year. We've taken a couple breaks here and there, um, but we've been working through uh, Mark's Gospel. Now we find ourselves right on the end of chapter 10 and right on the cusp of the last week of the life of Christ. When you look at chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, It's just interesting because Mark has just been barreling through the life of Christ for the first 10 chapters and are right on the very tail end of that immediacy of him moving us forward, giving us answers to the questions, who is Jesus and what did he come to do? And then when he rounds into chapter 11, he's like, he's just going to slam on the brakes and we go into like that Matrix sort of movie, Keanu Reeves slow-mo, we're all of a sudden going to slow way down as we zoom in and unpack the last week of the life of Christ. But before we get there, Jesus has another lesson to teach the disciples on discipleship. We said that chapters 8, 9, and 10 are basically a highly concentrated dose of discipleship. What does it look like to follow the king who came to die? What does that look like? How are we to think? How are we to desire? How are we to choose as we walk through life following this king? This morning, as you see, and we begin to unpack, my aim is to show us that King Jesus is going to reveal himself. He's going to reveal himself to be the servant savior. And this servant savior has a specific call on the lives of those who follow him. And it's specifically for us to be servant slaves. And so let's turn our attention in prayer. And so we ask the Holy Spirit to come and to empower the preaching of his word. Then we'll dive in and begin to unpack this section of Mark's gospel. So let's pray. Father, my fear is that this morning, way too many of us have come with no expectations of hearing from you. That we've come here this morning, yes, to maybe sing a few songs, yes, maybe to see some of our friends, yes, maybe to hear a guy talk. But when it all comes down to it, my fear is that we've come here with no expectation of experiencing you, no expectation of hearing from you, no expectation of being filled by you, no expectation of having sin exposed, no expectation of having our eyes turned to the sun, no expectation of tasting the fruits of the good news of the servant Savior who died on the cross as a ransom. Father, I am inept in my ability to make us come with this expectation, but Father, I turn my eyes to the one who has the full ability to turn 
our expectations to bend them rightly in a way they need to be bent. And so I'm asking that you right now, Holy Spirit, would come to empower the preaching of the word, that you would fill us right now and sharpen our minds to receive the word, open our eyes to see the word, tune our ears to hear the word so that we would walk away as men and women, people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God to leave and do the work of God. Holy Spirit, come. It's in the powerful name of Christ, our resurrected King, I pray. Amen. Influence. Think about that idea of influence. Some of us have the responsibility in life of having great influence. And we wield great influence over a great number of people. For others of us, our field of influence is just admittedly smaller. And our influence is concentrated on fewer people. But in some way and some level, every one of us has influence. And if we're honest with ourselves, what we do is we, when we lay our heads on our pillows at night and we just sort of have those clear moments of thinking maybe before you drift off into the third stages of anesthesia and you're just out and conked out for the night, what we do is we'd have to admit, you know what, like I really have a strong desire for my influence. I want my influence in the life of other people to actually yield great things. I want my job to make a difference in the world because I work at that job. I want my friends and my friendships to be helpful and uplifting to one another because of the way we have counsel and the way that we have concern for one another. I want my parenting to guide and correct because of the way that I love and the way that I care and the way that I yield, wield influence in these spheres of life. You see, whether you're a parent here this morning, a teacher, a friend, or a spouse, we've all tasted, we've all experienced that desire for genuine, actual influence that changes someone else. And if we are really honest with ourselves, especially as those of us who are here this morning who claim the name of Christ, who have repented of our sins, who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we would also admit that we have a desire for our influence in the lives of others to accomplish great things for God. And this is a good and this is a right desire. You see, the drive for influence, this impulse to be great and to do great things, these are deep desires given by God that are meant to be used for His glory. But as we know all too well, our desires, maybe more specifically our desires for greatness and our desires for influence, they have a way of getting derailed. They have a way of getting hijacked by sin. Now again, we've got to say this, there is nothing wrong with desiring to be great and to do great things for God. But for many of us, our desire for greatness is not the problem. 
Our problem is that the world has reshaped our definition of what a great thing is. And because our definition of greatness is out of whack, our desire for greatness leads us down paths that you and I were never meant to travel as those who follow King Jesus. You see, this is why we need our definition of greatness to be realigned, to be reoriented, to be reshaped, bent back into alignment with the true definition of what greatness and influence is meant to look like for those who have citizenship in the kingdom of King Jesus. And so as we turn our attention to these verses this morning, verses 32 through 45 in Mark chapter 10, what Mark is doing is he's turning our attention to this very reality of what does genuine greatness look like? What does it look like to be a servant slave in the kingdom of King Jesus? This is eventually where Jesus is going to go. He is the servant Savior, and for those who follow the servant Savior, He is going to call us to be men and women who are servant slaves. And so what Mark does is sandwiches this reality of what it means for you and I to be servant slaves. He sandwiches it between the two pieces of bread, so to speak, the the bread of Christ's suffering, where he's for the third time going to call our attention to Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection and sandwiching it on the back end with the realities of why this servant Savior had to come and die. And so as we see, we're looking at James and John. They have a desire for greatness. But these two disciples, even with their deep desire for greatness, what they're going to do is they're going to see that their desires need to be reshaped according to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. So we're going to say a bunch of times this morning, it is not wrong to have desires. Every one of us here right now has a bucket list of desires in our hearts right now. Some of them need to go, but the bulk of them don't. But I would suggest to us this morning that the high-level majority of our desires must be, need to be reshaped according to the realities of the king who was crucified and resurrected. And that's exactly what James and John are going to learn this morning. In essence, they're going to learn that the radical call of discipleship, it even invades us to the level of our heart's desires. That's what we're going to see this morning. So the first thing that Mark's going to do, though, is establish the reality of our heart's desires being reshaped according to the cross. He's going to turn our attention to Jesus. And the first thing that he's going to highlight for us is this truth that Jesus is the servant Savior. Jesus is the servant Savior. Savior. Look at your copy of Scripture. It can look in that Black Pew Bible around you. Pull it up on your phone, iPad, the Bible that you brought with you. Turn your attention to verse 32. Notice what Mark begins to write. He says, and they, that is Jesus, the twelve, they're on the road. They're going up to Jerusalem. 
Jesus was walking ahead of them. And notice the reaction of the crowd, the reaction of the disciples. They were amazed and those who followed were afraid, Mark says. Really bizarre sort of first-person insight there. I mean, Jesus just is walking on the road and the 12 disciples are there, but Mark tells us that they, the disciples, the 12, were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And the idea is because Jesus is so locked in on the will of the Father, knowing that he is going to Jerusalem and he is going to die and he's going to be mocked, he's going to be flogged, he's going to be spit on, he's going to be killed. The disciples, I think, are starting to taste a little bit of the realities of this coming true and they're standing here amazed like i can't believe the dead set determination of the christ to get to jerusalem and i think there's an inkling within the crowd like this is nuts man like we know if he goes to jerusalem we know what's going to happen to him and they are sitting there afraid but jesus redeems this opportunity he's going to begin to tell the disciples what is going to happen to him saying see we are going up to jerusalem and the Son of Man, notice eight things are going to happen. The Son of Man, one, will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes. Two, they will condemn him to death. So Jesus is going to suffer at the hands of the criminal justice system. Three, they're going to deliver him over to the Gentiles, that is the Romans in Jerusalem. Four, they will take over and they will begin to mock him. Five, spit on him. Six, flog him. Seven, kill him. Ultimately resulting, lastly, in three days after his crucifixion, he will rise again. And so what you see here in this third and final foretelling of Jesus' death and resurrection, that Jesus is in as many chapters as now for the third time laying out the realities of what's going to happen to him. And with more detail than he has given the previous two times, Jesus takes this last time with his disciples to explain his mission to them. And he gives it in exacting detail. There's something prophetic coming from the prophet right now. He knows what's going to happen to him before it has happened. Jesus knows his death is not incidental to his mission. It's not like he's going to Jerusalem and maybe these things will happen. He says, listen, I'm going here because in God's sovereign plan of redemption, I must die. I've got to. He understands that his death is absolutely central to both who he is and what he came to do. So remember, these are the two questions we've been asking now for almost a year, saying you can break down Mark's gospel in these two ways. Who is Jesus and what did he come to do? Who is Jesus and what did he come to do? And what we learn in answer to these questions, and more specifically from our verses this morning, is that Jesus is the servant Savior. This is who he is and this is what he came to do. As God's perfect servant, Jesus, verse 45, came not to be served but to serve. Who is Jesus? He's the servant. And we also see that as God's perfect Savior... He was sent to die. This is what he came to do. But what's so unique about this interaction now, for the third time Jesus retelling who he is and what he came to do, we finally get to the question of why does this have to happen? Why? Like, why does it have to be this way? 
Like, why can't God in the heavens just snap his finger and go, folk are saved? Wave his fingers, everyone's redeemed. Done. Why does he not do that? Why does it have to be Jesus going to Jerusalem, dying on a cross, going into a grave, three days later resurrecting from the grave as a ransom for many? Why? Jesus is going to unpack that for us. You see, this is what verse 45 is all about. If you want to mark this down in your Bible, I'd highly recommend you do so. The center point, the epicenter of the Mark's gospel is Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It all revolves around on this center point. When Jesus says that the Son of Man came not to be served, he didn't come with the expectation, everyone exists to serve me. Although he could have. Philippians chapter 2 says he would have had that right. But that's not what he came to do. The Son of Man came not to be served, but what did he come to do? He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What Jesus is doing is he is explaining once again why he must go to Jerusalem and die. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom. Now the word ransom is a word that we don't often use every day. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and assume that this past week around the water cooler at work, you guys weren't just dropping ransom language and just talking about the finer points of, of being a ransom or giving a ransom or paying a ransom or being a ransomer. And so what we're going to do is just sort of think on this idea of what a ransom is. And the idea behind the word ransom is this, to buy the freedom of a slave, to buy the freedom of a prisoner. Okay, so the ransomer would make a huge sacrificial payment that paid the debt of the slave or the prisoner in order to procure their freedom. And the reason why this had to happen is because the slave was stuck. The prisoner was held hostage in their slavery until someone came along who had the means to pay the necessary ransom. So if you were a slave, if you were a prisoner in the time of Jesus, this is language they would fully have understood because this is Old Testament language. What this person who was the prisoner or the slave would understand is, listen, I am here. I have a master. I have someone over me. I am in bondage right now. And there's nothing I can do to procure my freedom. What I need is someone outside of the situation who has the means and the ability to not just look at me and have a compassionate care for me, but who can sacrifice of themselves, offer up some payment so that once the payment is paid, my freedom would be procured and I would no longer exist in this instance of being a slave, in this instance of being a prisoner. And so when Jesus says in verse 45, I came to give my life as a ransom for many, what Jesus is doing is he's teaching something true about you and me. He's teaching something true about you and me. Like a prisoner, every one of us is sold into the bondage of slavery to sin. And what you and I need is a ransom. We need someone who can pay what we could never possibly pay in order to procure our freedom from sin. 
And in verse 45, when Jesus says what he says about giving his life as a ransom, Jesus is point blank saying, I am that ransom. I am that ransom. Not obey the law of God, that's your ransom. Be more religious, that's your ransom. Obey mom and dad better, that's your ransom. Be better at life, that's your ransom. Do good works, that's your ransom. Jesus doesn't say that. What we need is a ransom that is equal in value to the offense of our sin. Sin is a cosmic evil. Sin is a cosmic evil against God. And what we need is a cosmic payment, a divine payment that is equal in value to the offense of our sin. And Jesus says, I am that payment. I am that ransom. I am going to go to Jerusalem. I am going to give my life. I am going to be a sacrifice. Why? So that many who are held hostage by sin can find freedom from sin. This is why I came to die. The sacrifice of my life is going to ransom people from their sin. Now, in the words of John Piper, thinking about Mark chapter 10, verse 45, this verse right here, Mark 10, 45, is what turns Christianity into gospel. This verse is what turns Christianity into gospel. You see, Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to die. He came to give his life. And this reality sets him apart from the founder of every other major world religion. You see, their purpose was to live and to merely be an example. If you go and you examine other major world religions, they've got key leaders just like Christianity has a key leader, but all the key leaders come onto this world, they teach some good stuff, and ultimately they're all pointing outward, saying, do these things. I'm just merely an example. Uh, you need to do is follow these rules and obey these things and look out here in this place. But what sets Jesus apart is he steps on the scene and he says, my purpose here on earth wasn't to merely teach some things and be an example. My purpose is to come and die and be a sacrifice so that I can ransom people from their sin. You see, the beauty of it all is that Jesus came to give his life. Do you notice the language here? No one's taken the life from Jesus. Jesus isn't suffering as some victim of the criminal justice system of the first century AD. He's not doing that. Jesus is willingly coming and offering his life as a ransom. No one is taking his life from him. Jesus went to the cross and died because of God's great love for sinners. In the words of the Apostle Paul, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. I love this verse. It's one of my favorite verses. It doesn't say God shows his love for us in that while we were lovely, he came and died for us. While we had our act together, he came and died for us. While we were put together and perfectly able on our own to achieve salvation, he came. No, it says God shows his love for us in that while we were, love the word, still. Still sinners. Christ died for us. Do 
You see, the freedom-procuring payment of Jesus' death on the cross, it stands as the proof of God's love for you. God shows His love. God, prove it. How have you shown your love? Sent my son to the cross to die for you when you had done absolutely nothing to earn that love. That's unconditional love. Listen, our debt of sin had to be paid. But it was a bill that we could never settle. But the good news of the cross is that God was so incredibly loving that he was willing to die in order to do it himself. Jesus giving his life as a ransom is the only way that our debt of sin could ever read paid in full. Paid in full. And so the promise is that for anyone who comes to Jesus in childlike faith, trusting him and his sacrifice alone as payment for their sin, the promise of Scripture is this person can receive eternal life. Can receive eternal life. Thinking on this this past week, it reminded me of this old hymn. He paid a debt... He did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. My debt he paid upon the cross. He cleansed my soul from all its dross. I thought that no one could all my sins Erase, but now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. You see, this is the serving and saving work of Jesus Christ. And once we come to grips with the servant Savior who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many this reality will begin to shape our approach to the way we serve others. It will. And so when we go back into verse 35, as we move from the two slices of bread, so to speak, of the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus, who He is, what He came to do, and why, and we move to the meat, so to speak, of the sandwich in the middle and track back to verse 35, this is exactly what Mark begins to unpack for us, showing us how the servant Savior calls us to live as servant slaves. That's what this whole interaction with Jesus and James and John and the other ten disciples turns into. Jesus is going to unpack for them, listen, I'm the servant Savior. He's just given that to us. But that doesn't exist in a vacuum. The reality that I am the servant Savior is meant to have an impact on you specifically in the ways that you will go about being a servant slave to others. So notice that in verse 35, Mark writes this, that immediately on the heels 
I mean, if you just haven't taken the time to read these verses, and maybe they're just sort of fresh on you, or when Amanda came up here and read these, man, just let this sink in. The interaction that is about to take place right now between James and John right on the hills of Jesus saying, I'm going to Jerusalem, boys. I'm going to suffer the most horrific death he could possibly think of. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be mocked. We've got emotional and physical and verbal abuse. We've got the ultimate physical abuse. They're going to flog him to the point that he's going to be nearly dead. Then they're going to actually kill him. And right on the heels of this, Jesus has this interaction with James and John where they come up to Jesus and go, Good teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Jesus being the good teacher he is, says, what do you want me to do for you? Ever asked a foolish question in your life and received grace? We want you to do whatever we want. Jesus goes, what do you want me to do? This should probably be a sermon in and of itself. And so they respond, this is what we want you to do for us. Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. You see, one of the hardest discipleship lessons to learn is to learn how the serving and saving work of Jesus actually affects us in every area of life. Your thoughts, your feelings, your choices, all of them are to come under submission to the serving and saving work of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, man, if you were just born again last week or you've been walking with Jesus for multiple years, hello, that is one of the ultimate, man, I'm looking at, I'm looking at my elder elder right over here, man, this brother's been serving Jesus for a long time. And he'd be the first one to tell you one of the hardest lessons, discipleship lessons to learn is how the serving and saving work of King Jesus impacts every 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 area of life to deny ourselves to take up our cross and follow jesus is to relinquish the right of ownership over our lives and to declare i've got a new owner now that's what it means to be a slave romans 6 says we once had a slave master it was sin but now once we come to jesus it's not like all of a sudden we're just running free with no master over us we have a new master now and his name is king jesus you see god has designed you and me, men and women, to exist with desires, okay? But at times, if we are honest with ourselves, we would have to say, man, we are a mystery to us. As we wrestle with impulses and we wrestle with intuitions that seemingly come out of nowhere, desires are like, why in the world is this, like, what is this about? But at other times, we fully understand the desires of our heart. And the reality is that there are times when these desires outright stand in conflict with the saving and serving work of Jesus Christ. So when Mark turns our attention to James and John in these verses, this is exactly where we find these two disciples. 
James and John had a deep desire for greatness, a deep desire to wield great influence in God's kingdom. I mean, it's just right there in verses 35, 36, and 37. Jesus, yeah, 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 the whole kingdom stuff, but will you do whatever we want you to do? We want to sit at your right hand and your left hand in glory. We want to be great. You see, James and John were no dummies. As the journey is continuing to Jerusalem, they realize the significance of what's going on. They're slowly beginning to learn that like Jesus, in a very short amount of time, is going to go. Peter has already confessed him as the Christ. They're stitching pieces together, and I think they're sort of maybe having this like light bulb moment where they're like, I think like this whole kingdom of God thing is about to like kick off. And like, if this is going to be the deal, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to assert myself and make sure I get into a place where I have honor in the kingdom to where King Jesus is ruling on his throne and on the right hand is James and on the left hand is John. That's where we want to be. We want the premier spot in the kingdom. We want to be great. We have a desire for influence. And so with a bold-faced declaration, they come to Jesus and say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Jesus prompts them again. He says, what do you want me to do for you? To which they reply again, grant us to sit, one at your right, one at your left. Oh, and I love that last little phrase. Like, it wasn't just enough for them to say, we want to sit at your right hand and in your left hand. It's like, oh, obviously, for your, for your glory, Jesus. In, in your glory. That, that's why we're making this request. I think what they're doing is they're trying to like baptize their selfish ambition for greatness with the glory of Christ. (laughs) Their desire had led them to the place where they were willing to use the glory of the king for their gain. I think that's what's going on there. For James and John, their desire was for greatness... But it was greatness defined by worldly standards. It was selfish ambition. It was power. It was control. It was position. And so what they're doing is that they're looking at Jesus and saying, well, we want you to do whatever. Jesus says, ask me and I'm going to do it. And they're like, we basically want to be great in your kingdom. And oh, yeah, uh, like the glory stuff too, right? But what James and John are about to learn, listen, is that attaching Jesus' name to these kinds of desires does not change the fact that they look like the cravings of the world. And the trouble is that you and I are more like James and John than we care to admit. What we try to do is baptize the desires of our heart that don't quite mesh with kingdom citizenry and we just try to attach this glory jesus business unto these desires going like no 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 the reason why i desire that power is for your glory the reason why i desire this money is for your glory the reason why i desire this job this car this lifestyle this relationship this money this spouse this promotion the reason why I want these things is for your glory. 
And we try to baptize our desires that don't mesh with serving and slaving like the servant Savior, assuming that if we just sort of baptize it enough, attach the name of Jesus enough to it, that somehow this desire will make us look different from the world. But the world is smart enough to know that when we're just baptizing their desires that are the same as ours for self-glory, self-promotion, self-gain, they see right through it. The problem is we so often fail not to see right through it, and we think we're actually walking a path that is, that is good and right. But what James and John are going to hear and learn very quickly is that you can't just simply attach Jesus' name to selfish desires and assume that somehow that just changes the actual understanding of that desire. So notice that Jesus asked them a question. He heard their desire, but he doesn't rebuke them for expressing their desire. Tons of grace in there. Right? Jesus comes up to them and says, boys, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, well, here's my desire. Notice that Jesus goes, stupid, smashes them down. He doesn't do it. Get your act together. Stop having such foolish desires. Again, I think there's probably another sermon in here somewhere to where what we see in Jesus is he is welcoming to us as we are growing in Christ. We can come to Jesus and say, I have these desires. I sort of got this bucket list of wishes. I'm just, can I be open with you? And Jesus is like, obviously you can be open with me. And we can pour out our heart's desires to Jesus. But what Jesus does is just because they came and they expressed the raw desire of their heart for greatness, Jesus doesn't go, boys, I love that you're so open and free with me. Now just go off and do whatever you want to do. He says, thank you, basically, for expressing the raw desire of your heart. Now let me help you bend this desire in a way that will bring glory and honor to me. Jesus is going to reshape a good desire that's been hijacked by sin, and that's gracious of him. That's good of him. He doesn't rebuke us for having desires. But he does want the desires of our hearts to fall in submission to who he is as the king. You see, we need our desires to be reshaped by the cross. We need our desires to be reshaped by the cross, and that's exactly what Jesus does. He goes in this whole thing about a cup and a baptism. On the cross, Jesus is simply explaining how he is going to drink the cup of God's wrath against sin. This is Old Testament imagery. Jesus is going to be baptized or flooded or immersed with the waters of God's judgment when he goes to the cross. James and John think they can handle this. Jesus asked the question, boys, do you think you can handle this? And again, <laughs> they're learning. We're able. Come on, man. No, you're not. But Jesus says, actually, boys, you are going to experience something similar to this, but ultimately your request, verse 40, is denied because sitting at my right hand, sitting at my left hand, it's not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. And then verse 41, notice that the other ten disciples, old Peter, the ringleader, is actually left out of this little, little tidbit. 
They catch whiff that James and John are trying to jump the gun and get ahead in the kingdom of God. And it doesn't say here explicitly, but my sanctified imagination would like to think that they're going, oh, dang, I wish I would have thought of that. It stinks that they got there ahead of me. And so now it stokes the fires of their indignation. Strong word there, verse 41. They began to be indignant at James and John, furious at them exerting this kind of wish list before Jesus. And so what it all does is it brings Jesus to the place where he calls the disciples to themselves and says, boys, like right, Jesus is about to die. He's right on the cusp of the last week of his life. He's like, boys, we've we, we got to nail nail down this discipleship lesson here. And so starting in verse 42, Jesus says, guys, basically look around at the way the world exercises desires, specifically for greatness and influence. Verse 42, you know, says Jesus, that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but, love this phrase, it shall not be so among you. And you get there eventually, it's okay. It shall not. Command from the king. It shall not be so among you, he says. You see, Jesus knows that inside all of us there's a deep desire for greatness, a great drive for influence, but Jesus also knows that the common understanding of greatness is defined by selfish ambition and a lust for power and position. We want to be seen as great in the eyes of others whenever sin hijacks this desire. And we begin to move and to act and to speak and to think and to prevent false views of ourselves so that people would have high views of respect. Of it. We start to do all these things as we try to jockey for power, jockey for position. Jesus knows that in the world, the common way of thinking about this desire for greatness is this, is that the more important you are, the more people ought to serve you. That's the common definition of greatness in, in our world. You move up the ladder in importance, and the more you move up, the more people ought to come and serve you, and to serve you, and to give to you, to bow to you, to do whatever you want. But Jesus says this way of thinking, this definition, should not be so among you. It shall not, he says. In the kingdom of King Jesus, the more important you are, it is not the more you are served. Rather, the more important you are in the kingdom of King Jesus, it's more you are to serve people. Dumps the whole thing right on his head. Do you see that? world says, you're great. You exist as the epicenter in the lives of everyone else, and they exist to serve you. Jesus says, in the kingdom of God, the more that you become great, it's not that you exist as the epicenter of everyone else's world, and they exist to serve you. It's you exist to serve them. Because ultimately, you've been served by the servant Savior, who came to give his life as a ransom for you. 
not to be served, but to serve. So here I was as a sinner traipsing down the road, and the servant Savior lowers himself in humiliation and gives of himself to the point of death on a cross. And Jesus is saying, boys, the cross and the resurrection means something for the way you think about the world you live in, the relationships you have, the conversations at work, the neighbor across the fence, the spouse, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the college roommate, everything. You don't exist to be the epicenter of everyone else's world. You exist to now be a servant slave who says, I'm going to give and give and give and sacrifice like the Savior who sacrificed for me. That's the kingdom ethic right there. That's what the good news of the kingdom of King Jesus will do to people who grasp this thing and have been grasped by the gospel. It shall not be so among you, he says. In the kingdom, the more important you are, it's not the more you're served, he says. It's the more you are to serve people. Whoever would be great among you, some of your translations might say, whoever wants to be great. That's desire language. Do you want this? Do you have this desire? Do you want to be great? I do want to be great. Then Jesus says, phenomenal, be a servant. Whoever would be first, do you want to be first? Is it okay to admit I do want to be first? Jesus goes, love it. Be a slave. Jesus isn't rebuking that little desire within you to want to be great and to want to be first. But what he is saying is that that cross and my resurrection is going to bend this in a way that is going to be countercultural and revolutionary to everyone that you come in contact with. Be first, he says. Be great, he says. But be great because you are a servant. Be great because you are a slave of all. You see, the greatest... And the best person who ever lived and walked on this earth was a humble servant. He got down low so that he might lift others up. He, according to Philippians 2, 3, says, considered others as more important than himself. And he was so driven by this gospel reality and it led him to death on the cross. And now what he's doing is he's sitting here unpacking this reality for James and John and subsequently for every person who seeks to follow Jesus since James and John is that he is calling us to follow him and do the same. Jesus, the servant savior, is calling you to live as a servant slave. Here the servant Savior say, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, I don't know 
if the weight of this text is just landing on someone else. Uh, but if there was ever a text that just fell into the category of easy to hear but hard to do, I think it would be this one. And I would even dare say if there's ever a text that falls in the category of just hard to hear, it would be this text as well. So, Father, I pray that for those of us who have heard this morning and we just see ourselves in the text, we look at James and John and we're not sitting here going, oh, man, I'm so glad person X is here today. That person needs to hear this. But we find ourselves in the place where it's like, oh, man, I see my face when I look at James and John. Jesus is talking to me. God, I pray that you'd pour out mountains of grace today. That you would assist us, Lord Jesus, in humbling ourselves as servant slaves. Humbling ourselves in such a way to where we are able to mimic the sacrifice of the king. This is not something that we just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and do. This is something where we go, I'm needy, I'm dependent, I'm weak, I have, I have no ability to do this on my own. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to fill me and assist me to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of King Jesus. God, I pray that you would do that now this morning in us. Come and have your way in us. Meet with those of us who have desires this morning that need to be reshaped by the cross. And may we hear not a strong-handed rebuke from the compassionate shepherd, but will we hear the shepherd say, I heard what you said. You've told me the desire. I understand why you have that desire. But sister, brother, let me reshape this according to the cross for the glory of the Father. God help us. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.